Hey guys, it's Jolene. Um, I just wanted to give a quick shout out before I started the recording. I really want to apologize for my mic in this recording. I'm not recording in my usual spot, uh, nor with my usual mic. So I tried to tweak it as much as I could. Um, so I apologize if it gives you some weird tinniness uh, in your ears while you're listening to this episode. And I hope you just stick with that episode um, despite that. So again, I really apologize for my mic. And now to the episode. My name is Jolene. And I'm Emma. Two costume designers who share love of horror and fashion history have brought us together to deep dive the horror genre, going behind the scenes to uncover, understand, and analyze iconic horror characters and costumes that are simply to die for. On this episode of To Die For, we'll be chatting about summer camp slashers and their nostalgic contemporary counterpart. From the history of summer camp to personal experience costuming a retro camp revival, we'll be deep diving into Crystal Lake and chatting all things summer camp costuming and why we're so drawn to nostalgia. To kick off our conversation, let's jump into the history of summer camp. Jolene, please tell me everything. I will. So I love this topic, first of all, because I was a camp counselor. And we want to thank you guys for being patient with us because Emma and I have been super busy this month. So we're only (laughs) going to get that one episode out to you guys. But this one's going to be a fun one because it's July. So how could we not do summer camp horror? We have to do a little something something. Uh, Were you a camp counselor, Emma? I was an outdoor school camp counselor. So I was not like a (gasps) summer camp counselor, but I was a variety of camp counselor and I okay. talked about plants. <laughs> Fine. Oh, that's super fun. No, I was just a regular old like Girl Scout day camp counselor. <laughs> I love that though. I feel like that's the true authentic camp experience. You know what? It was a lot of fun and I still have three of my best friends that I grew up with. Are st- I mean, I still have them in my life because of summer camp. So we did Aww. not die that summer. <laughs> we, we were all final girls and boys. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. I feel like summer camp and just any variety of like weekend camp, day camp, especially when you're a teen and you're like one of the counselors, there's definitely a sense of like independence and um, kind of managing yourself out in the woods for the first time. Uh, And I know that like young kids going to camp maybe have a variety of experiences that range from absolutely terrifying to like finding themselves. But I think when you're a teen, you're kind of like, ooh, I'm out on my own. Oh, yeah. I did three weeks at the sleepaway camp because at the, my high school boyfriend also worked at that same sleepaway camp. And then after three weeks, I was like, I cannot work with him. But the three weeks that I spent at sleepaway <laughs> camp were a lot of fun. And like, it was it was very different. And we had a lot of international camp counselors as well, which is pretty mm. cool. But yeah, it is when you're a teenager or, or a preteen and you're going because I think you had to be 16 to be a CIT and then 17 and up was counselors. So I was about 18 mm-hmm. at the time. So all of like the 14 and 15 year olds, we would have camp dances once a week. And I remember them, you know, getting gussied up. And like, that's a lot of the times when a lot of these kids get their first kisses and their first crushes mm-hmm. because there's no parental supervision. And it's basically babies taking care of babies, which is, I think, it another... Is 
reason why the horror genre fits so neatly into this summer camp world because it's like kids taking care of children. So there's not a lot of supervision that's happening. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like it can be genuinely quite scary for kids in real life. Like I know for me, when I went to outdoor school um, as a sixth grader, as like a kid, um, it was this, I just remember it being this desolate place. And it was funny because we were like, oh, you know, in Oregon, we have the two, like there's, well, okay, there's four outdoor schools. There's the two beach ones, and then the two forest ones. And we got to go to the beach one, which is the super exciting one, but we went to the beach one that was closing down the next year. So oh it was God. actually just really creepy. <laughs> there was like dirty water slides going into Ugh. the dirty lake. And there was um the cabins. There was like three cabins that was infested with ants. And I was in one of them. Oh, my and God. They, they had to like move us because they were like, oops, we put you in the infested cabin. That's so funny. It's <laughs> it was quite the experience, but I enjoyed it enough to come back as a counselor uh, further down the line. Um, but you know, a lot of times there's like freaking aside from bug infestations, you're like isolated in this dark, vast place. Um, and (laughs) I think that different people respond quite differently to it, but it can also be a really exciting place to be in. Yeah, absolutely. So summer camps are, are purely an American thing, which I think is pretty cool. Um, I don't, I don't know off the top of my head if other countries do it to the extent that we do, but they were created in 1880, basically when urbanization was really taking hold on the East Coast specifically, that they felt that young men were losing their like machismo robust um, manliness because they were living in these urban environments and um, they were afraid of them dying from indoorsness. That was like a big campaign at the end of the, the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So you had boys being shipped away to summer camp to kind of give them these skills back where they were learning like you know, wood chopping and canoeing and all of these like really manly skills. But then it actually didn't take that long after that for all girls camps and all boys camps to just kind of coexist. And obviously they weren't intermingled for quite a while. But what was really cool in my research was that every race and religion was accounted for at these camps. So you did have integrated camps, but then you had specifically you know, Jewish camps, you had specifically black mm-hmm. summer camps, you had specifically like women's sum- summer camps for Girl Scouts, you had, you know, not Girl Scout type summer camps. So there was a, everybody was accounted for, which is pretty cool. So it gave all these children like more, um, just some place to go that wasn't this urban space in the summer. And because initially summer vacations weren't all summer vacations. So school years, depending on where you lived in the country, were based on the farming calendar. And usually it's either spring or fall is the harvest or harvest of prep. And then when kind of urban schools took over because there was they were much more populated, everybody came down to this one summer vacation. So that's when everybody got off essentially mm. for the year. Um, and it was just, so it, it, that was when you really saw a boom in summer camps because now every kid had the same vacation. So everybody can, you know, parents didn't know what to do with their children all across the country. It wasn't just in one part of the country, (laughs) which is pretty cool. Um, Yeah. And then you saw a shift from outdoor skills and um, coming back to nature and teaching them life skills to more as um, in World War II, this preservation of childhood, which is really interesting. 
And it makes sense that during World War II, at a time when the world was in the most shit and turmoil, that it was this idea of preserving innocence. And that's what we know the modern summer camp is today, where you go and you do arts and crafts and you go canoeing and you go swimming and you tell ghost stories around the campfire and all of those things. So that's where all of that came into play was during the 1940s and then just skyrocketed from there. Yeah. You know, I've always kind of wondered why there aren't even more summer camp slashers these days that center around like religious summer camps, because that is such a massive thing, particularly in America. Um, I know for me growing up Jewish, I was like one of the very few kids that didn't go to like Jewish summer camp. Yeah, it's like a huge thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like my dad would you know, all of his stories about summer were from Jewish summer camp. It's a massive thing. And I think that alone is kind of scary. Like, because I remember him telling me this story about how at Jewish summer camp, they were like teaching you like this really extremist Zionist propaganda at summer camp as a child when you didn't have your parents around. (laughs) And obviously kids are, you know, going to listen to what their superiors are telling them and absorb that information. And, you know, it's kind of one of those, uh, I don't know, it's sneaky. That's why it's so creepy is because it's a really sneaky way at kind of getting into children's heads and helping them form their beliefs in their formative years. Absolutely. Especially when you have counselors so close to them in age Mm -hmm. that, you know, they look up to them a lot. Yeah. So it's so easy to to kind of infiltrate a child's mind in that way. And I think that's why all of these movies are so effective and they work so well because we're dealing with children, we're dealing with teens and young adults. You maybe have like one or two adults at this camp and they're directing the camp. So they're not on the ground with the kids and the counselors. So you just let loose a bunch of, like I was saying before, babies to take care of babies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that alone can be very dangerous. Yeah. Um, or it can be very enlightening. Depends what camp you go to. Yeah. <laughs> I know we were we were trying to be as positive as possible at Girl Scout camp. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, even I can imagine there's quite a bit of toxic positivity and like force forcing of a positive, uh, positive attitude towards things that are maybe not necessarily positive and kind of using that. And this is more in like the context of like religious camps, right? Of like using that positive attitude to enforce a specific idea mm-hmm. um, that the kids don't are like, well, this is, this is normal. This is, I guess what I'm supposed to believe if I want to be a happy child, happy camper or, or correct. Yeah. <laughs> a happy camper. Um, that's so interesting. And I, you can tell that it's very heavily ingrained in what we know to be the golden age of horror um, is also very much the golden age of summer camps. I feel yeah. like uh, in the 70s, uh, the late, well, the late 70s to the early 80s was really this moment in time where it feels like the, the subgenre of summer camp slashers are always going to call back to that era. It's not going to mm-hmm. be any of the befores or afters. Um, and you know, we'll get into that more as far as the costuming, but you can tell that it kind of feels like this time capsule to a very specific, like it's a yeah. very keyed in subgenre. Yeah. It knows itself really well. It does. And it does kind of harken back to a lot of what we speak on when we talk about the movement through the decades, where mm-hmm. at the end of the seventies, you have this shift from all of these cultural upheavals that have been happening so now this idea to return to family values with reaganomics like mm-hmm. you know you have then the summer camp ideal of returning back to your innocence and this idea of just childhood 
and and then like bashing that on its head and taking it and and saying you know like well who the fuck cares if you're a child like we're gonna still infiltrate you anyway and like that's yeah right yeah and even before the Reagan era, which was obviously a very influential and notable part of this golden age of slashers. We had films like A Bay of Blood by Mario yeah. Bava in like 1971 that sort of was the very like beginnings of this sort of summer camp, like teens in the woods at the lake sort of thing. And I think there's even a scene in it that is harkened back to in, I think, Friday the 13th Part 2. Mm. Um where they have a sit a skinny dipping scene and two murder sequences that very closely follow what um, Mario Bava did in A Bay of Blood. And so in the 70s, we're starting to get these films. We had like Piranha in 1978, which is one of my favorites. Um, and you can really see, particularly in the costuming, more than the slasher film itself, uh, because this is more of a creature feature, but it's set at this summer camp resort. And you have films like that that are kind of starting to... You can tell that the summer... Summer vacation, summer camp, it's very much ingrained in the culture now to where we're having mainstream films being made about it, you know? And then once Ronald Reagan is elected, that's when the, you know, the slasher film at the height of its like commercial power becomes the center of this political and cultural, this zeitgeist. Right. And that's really when things started taking off because we had Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th in, that was 1980, I believe. Yeah. Friday the 13th was not only extremely commercially successful it was massive and there was financial success but the distributor paramount pictures was criticizing it for lowering itself to release like a violent exploitation film and you know it's of, of course slashers are notoriously like critically disgusted and right. <laughs> just this like massive thing and it was pretty big but friday the 13th even though we had these sort of sprinklings of like okay we're seeing this happening uh, we had a lot of summer camp films that were like not horror films in the 70s. I think yeah. pretty sure Meatballs, which is a questionable film, <laughs> yeah. came out in like 78 or something. Yeah, um, That being ingrained in the 70s combined with the era of slasher films, Friday the 13th was this like pinnacle point for really just nailing in the subgenre for the films to follow. Absolutely. Yeah. And when we talk about costuming, I mean, you think of the kind of clothing that you wear in the summer in general, but specifically at summer camps, they're very vulnerable clothing. Like mm -hmm. you might have some denim, but it's a lot of terry cloth. It's a lot of cotton shorts. It's a lot of small tank tops. So like these garments are very vulnerable and you're sticking these pre-adolescence in very vulnerable situations with fabrics that are so thin and can rip so easily and like mm -hmm. you know like it, it's 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 a really cool thing to to track and to watch and then when we get into you know some of the more modernized remakes where either they're calling back to the 70s and the 80s or they're they're their own thing we do see a shift in in how they're costumed for sure um it's not so much this like baseball tee you know athletic shorts with the tube socks anymore which is an interesting thing that we're we're, we're watching the shift of one of my favorite scenes in piranha um it's when the kids are like intertubing on the lake and they're with the counselors. That, I feel like, is one of the most vulnerable positions you can be. Yeah. You know, these kids are relaxing in, like, their little, like, super thin camp tees that they got, you know, for free when they joined the camp. And they're in their swimsuits. And, 
you know, the counselors are relaxing in their bikinis. And that's probably as vulnerable as one could be at yeah. this camp. Um, and ooh, something else I noticed that I just remembered because of Piranha. I feel like we see yellow probably the most consistently throughout all of these films and yeah. throughout their revivals. Yellow and evergreen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is funny because that's exactly the colors we used for Camp Calypso. I know. I know. And we're going to talk about Camp Calypso because I really love that short a lot. Thank you. It's so much fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's a blast. But yeah, you're wearing extremely vulnerable clothes because you're comfortable. This is vacation. This is like camp. We're doing fun, exciting things. But right, you're running around. You're playing Capture the Flag. You're swimming. It's warm. It's, warm. it's very warm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. is interesting to track that, that yellow color. Mm-hmm. And so we've touched on Friday the 13th a little bit in our first episode about the gruesome foursome. And Jolene had some really interesting things to say about the costuming in that episode, just about the color palettes and how that sort of plays with um, Jason Voorhees' color palettes and textures too. Mm. I would love to hear more about your thoughts on that and kind of the difference, but difference in texture because I think their textural difference is something that I know we both really love a lot, but it's not yeah. really talked about. But it's something that can really signify a character and you know open the doors a little bit into their stories that one for me has the most textual difference and it's not um costumed how the other summer camp slashers are typically costumed right so you're seeing a lot of those like solid color athletic shorts with like the white stripe in a lot mm-hmm. of these other ones but this one you don't get that really i think you get them on kevin bacon's character on the first one and that's it but everybody's got a lot of denim they have a lot of plaids they have a lot of layers like raincoats and sweaters and stuff um and then by the you know the second incarnation or even the third incarnation even more because in the second jason's wearing the overalls and the plaid so he's kind of mimicking them which we could talk about more but i definitely saw a call out too in the second part of fear street like that killer 100 mm-hmm. percent with the bag on his face yeah oh um, yeah i noticed that too i was yeah. like okay we we know what we're doing here yeah <laughs> but then in the third one he's got the grungy you know, like it's almost like a Michael Myers jumpsuit, but but not a jumpsuit. It's it's like that texture of a like a, a Carhartt or a Dickies jacket. It's like a work jacket. And mm-hmm. he's got the, you know, like the work pants on and it's very rough. It's very like scratchy. I think I remember mm-hmm. saying in that that other episode. Mm-hmm. And these other kids are just wearing like very smooth, very pastel and soft. And they're wearing denim, so denim's a bit scratchy, but it doesn't feel as scratchy as Jason feels. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And something I noticed that particularly in Friday the 13th and in Sleepaway Camp um, was that there's a lot of what I feel to be very intentional whites, like a lot of white shirts. Um, I noticed um, in Friday the 13th that there are characters that are vulnerable and in vulnerable positions and they're wearing white when they're in those vulnerable positions. And you see that in sleepaway camp too. And it's hard to say if that was, you know, of course an intentional choice because you know, a lot of these films, especially in the golden age of slashers don't necessarily have a full fledged costume department. Right. um, Or they don't, they have someone acting as a costume designer who is not credited as a costume designer. So, you know, it's very possible that they're making their own calls, but that they're just not getting, (laughs) paid as much as they should be right (laughs) Um, but the use of 
white, I think in general, it's a common, it's a common shade to be used in a very specific way. It almost always is going to mean that this person is vulnerable, pure, you know, virginal. We see that a lot in Final Girls. It's very common to see that also used on like children and like young kids because these are, you know, they're, they're vulnerable. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to protect themselves or defend themselves. Um, and so you see that mixed in with also a lot of pastels. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I believe Friday the 13th specifically has a lot of like baby pinks and baby blues. Um, yeah. And it just kind of specifically is costuming the children to not only look, you know, more comfortable, but also that the colors are signifying uh, their sort of innocence and childlike clothing of the time, even though those were already extremely popular colors in like the 80s, particularly. Um, but yeah. we often saw the kids dressed more like that versus the adults or the villains. Yeah. And you're, it, it creates this great contrast against our villains, too. Cause, you know, when I think of like the burning from 1981, mm. you know, that villain is mostly in like black leather and gloves and just so dark and so slick and he doesn't even look like he's from that world and then you look at the kids and baby mm -hmm. jason alexander with hair which i think is also very funny that he's in that movie <laughs> but it's hilarious again, yeah there's those like it's a lot of um so the texture so if we're going to talk texture right like think of a ribbed tank top think of like a ruched uh tube top where these textures are they're still there is a texture to them but they're softer textures like you know what a tank top feels like versus what like a leather jacket feels like and mm -hmm. we're getting that like just right there's one or the other on the spectrum which i think is pretty cool with these movies is that you can clearly see who is the adults who are the children and where the line of innocence is really laying for these and then mm -hmm. you have something like sleepaway camp that just completely turns that all on its head that we spoke about with harmony and alice you mm -hmm. know where every it, and i think that's what makes that twist ending of, of a child being a killer not not the other twist to the ending but just the fact that is it, she's a child and she's a killer yeah. so effective is that the line has been crossed at that point like we don't know because everybody's wearing the same texture so it's like a you know a faceless face in a crowd they yeah. blend in seamlessly which is really effective yeah absolutely and speaking of um Cropsy from the burning, you know, with all that leather, not to mention that it's basically the opposite of the weather that they're dealing with. Yes. Or or rather, it's not the opposite of the weather. It is just as warm as the weather is. That's why absolutely no one else is wearing leather at the summer camp. I think it's a really interesting choice and also feels very intentional because oh. he could have been in, you know, like a kind of a, a terry cloth or. Right like a cotton, you know, waffly texture. He could have been in sweats, you know, but it's, it's structured. It's, it's slick. I, like you said, that's, I think a great way yeah. to describe it. It feels like he's melting. Yes. Which, you know, he, it, which technically like he was he set is. on fire. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think, yeah, it, that is a brilliant choice to, to use those materials. And like, he's probably like the actor himself was probably hot and sticky in this material. It wasn't breathing mm -hmm. very much. So he, as the character's not breathing because his skin's not breathing because he's burnt, like you're mm -hmm. seeing all of these layers starting to form and that's how you yeah. build a character. That's the so actor's so dying of heat <laughs> exhaustion. <laughs> he's committing to the bit. Right. And it's the 80s. <laughs> so there's like, not a lot of unions and not a lot of breaks so they're like just keep going it's fine yeah you're fine you'll be fine <laughs> and you know we love him for it yeah. but 
Um, yeah, Sleepaway Camp. What an interesting film. And one of it's it's a fan favorite. It's also a fan unfavorite. Yeah. Um, obviously quite controversial in the eyes of uh, many horror fans. But when it comes to Angela's costuming, something that struck stuck out to me was that beyond the kind of, you know, the color palettes and the the textures that we're sort of expecting from these characters. I felt that Angela was dressed, um, and this is one of our buzzwords from our last episodes, uh, <laughs> androgynous. I felt that she was put in clothes that were pretty, could have been worn by anyone at the camp. Yeah, it wasn't. And and I say that because in the 80s, particularly, uh, gender roles were very heavily enforced in the horror genre. Um, and we saw that very clearly through um, through these characters and yeah. through these slasher films. I mean, even just the way clothes were marketed in the 80s, yeah. like that mall culture, that shopping culture that was happening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, this is kind of when a lot of these slasher tropes were being formed and those were heavily, you know, informed by gender stereotypes um and it felt very intentional to me that they would put angela in a basic striped button-up for mm. a lot of the film i don't know if she has more than one i think she does have another button-up uh she has like a yellow polo or something yes. yeah she does and you know sure this was something that was worn by a lot of young girls at the time mm -hmm. but also they ne didn't necessarily put a lot of the background characters in that type of dress even the boys weren't actually wearing that a lot of the boys in the film were wearing like adidas shirts and kind of the uh you know baseball tees and hats and stuff right. and i really like angela's costuming because it feels very it feels very safe very unassuming but also pretty genderless yeah it makes me think of um that scene in valley girl not a horror movie but i mean it's a great movie <laughs> it's relevant though <laughs> <laughs> where you know where they where you know they walk into the party of preps and everybody male and female they're all wearing some sort of polo or some sort of like yeah. pastel color like that's very um if you want to go with that word androgynous where that a polo of that time of that mm -hmm. kind in that time could be used as either you know male yeah. or female yeah yeah and check out our queer identity episodes if you want yeah. to hear us rant about the word androgynous and debate it for an hour and a half straight <laughs> over to over the course of two over episodes two, so, so it's gonna be a couple three hours. hours of us talking about <laughs> yeah. and it's is it inconclusive listen and find out yeah. <laughs> i also want to give a quick shout out to these movies of like this is the era before us curling irons well not curling irons but straightening irons and i i appreciate all the poofy hair in this movie it makes mm -hmm. me as a girl with poofy hair growing up feel less oh, yes. alone that I'm okay to be frizzy out in the wilderness. <laughs> and shout out to Curly and Irons for giving us some insane scenes. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> thank you, Curly and Irons. And thank you, Poofy Hair. <laughs> Surprise. Um, you know, something that I also love about Sleepaway Camp was I feel that, you know, and maybe even beyond Sleepaway Camp, summer camp slashers were and not not even just slashers in general but very specifically summer camp slashers not only feel very um they feel very well defined within their tropes but i feel that it is the subgenre that most clearly defined uh the classic tropes that we think of when we think of horror films yes uh as we know it today. Yeah. Especially you can see this in, you know, Judy's costuming. You know, we'll see Judy's costuming and Judy has 
a pink shirt that has her name on it. It says Judy. And she has her big preppy side pony. It's very poofy and delicious. Uh, and it really informs her character. So we're seeing these tropes being very heavily informed by the costume through the character. And that's where we're really going to get, you know, it's kind of the cabin in the woods thing. You know, you have the jock, you have right. the, the cheerleader, you have the nerd, that kind of thing. Yeah. You see every single one of those tropes, usually in the counselors um, at the camp. But you also get the mean the mean girl that's, you know, going to poke fun at like Wednesday Adams. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Tropes is, that's a whole interesting topic when it comes to summer camp slashers too, because it's, it's interesting to see how they were formed. Uh, and they were very much informed by real life clicks and, yeah. you know, coming, really coming out of the fifties. And like we talked about uh, also in our last couple episodes was that the 50s and the 80s kind of have this this polarity between their teen teen slashers, teen horror flicks. But that was also very much informed by the real life teen culture of that moment. Yeah. Uh, and that's how those tropes were really formed was that, you know, you had your, your cheerleader and your clique and the jocks and the popular people in high school in real life. And that was very much a part of the culture of the time and so you know piggybacking off of that that's how we're seeing these tropes form and I think that over the course of time I don't think that you know and correct me if I'm wrong but I don't think we really play into in real life those tropes as much as we did back in the day I do think that in high school probably in any year any point in time there's going to be that like social hierarchy thing yeah. and that you know will trickle into your adult life <laughs> but um that's why it kind of feels like this time capsule when you see these tropes very specifically replicated in these contemporary horror films uh, yeah. or even beyond horror because it, it feels campy it feels like this is silly you know yeah yeah I think um again and not another horror movie but um I always think of it's a summer camp movie, Wet Hot American Summer, where you have oh, those yes. tropes clearly defined in a very campy, funny way. But again, you're like they were defined in the eighties and now they're being set forth in two thousand one and not now all of these because in the nineties mm -hmm. we didn't get a lot of the only like summer camp something that I can think of, which is not horror, is um Salute Your Shorts, which was a nineties Nickelodeon show. It was about mm -hmm. kids at summer camp. I don't yeah. think I remember any summer camp horror from the nineties. Yeah, I, I don't think there definitely wasn't commercial, like popular big hitters. Yeah. So until and now there's like, I mean, we're seeing it all over the place now. I mean, now people are talking, the, the internet is a buzz with the research of the, the slasher genre, which is so yeah. amazing that we're now in this new renaissance of the slasher subgenre. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's going to include summer camps. Mm -hmm. It's going to have to. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I've yeah. never seen The Final Girls, but you have. So let's talk about that one. The Final Girls is a really fun film. It has, um, oh my gosh, what's his name? Teresa Farmiga is in it, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah, she is. She's in it, Um, which I just made the connection a little too recently that she was related to Vera Farmiga, which is really embarrassing. And they're sisters um, too. I thought it was like yes. an aunt- Yes, situation or sisters. I'm so surprised. Um, but she's in it. Thomas Middleditch is in it. Adam Levine, not Adam Levine. A Adam Devine. <laughs> not Maroon. Maroon Five is not in this film. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> but it's really fun because it's kind of this deconstruction of the '80s, you know, summer camp subgenre entirely. Right. Um, and it's basically about a young girl who's grieving the loss of her mother. Um, and her mom was this famous screen queen from the 80s. And she goes to see the film, I believe. She goes to, like, see her mother's film, this summer camp slasher, and 
somehow she gets pulled into the world along with a handful of people that were also, I don't remember if they were her friends or if they were just also at the screening, uh, this ragtag group of like college kids gets pulled into the summer camp slasher. And they basically, the, the slasher film is the slasher villain. That's and they cool. have to get out of the film. I think you would love it. Yeah, I've um, seen trailers and it's been on my list for a while, but I was I had no time to watch anything that's <laughs> that's entirely fine. <laughs> and I think, you know, it makes me think about how, you know, on the topic of tropes, uh, because this one very much is playing into that on purpose. And it's yeah. kind of not even in like a ooh, fun, campy way like we're seeing in like the in like Fear Street or something. Like right. Oh, we see the we see the tropes. This one was like taking the tropes and like making the tropes part of the That's antagonist. Cool. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting and fun. Um, but you know, eighties was like a playland for consumerism. Yeah, it absolutely. was one of the biggest things, and I think that that I think fed into the world of tropes both in film and in real life. Uh, because it was basically finding like the markets for people, and you you know you yeah. want people to have a sense of personal identity and identify with a specific group or style so people did and people wanted to they wanted to look like the popular girl or they maybe identified with the nerd that kind of thing it very much played into consumerism and we're so (laughs) we're so deep into consumerism these days but I also think that we've become more cynical since and that's maybe why and cynical in like a good way (laughs) like a you know we're aware of the consumerism around us but that we're not as gullible per se, as people were, or maybe Nicole is not the right word, maybe influential. We, we aren't as impressed by the consumerism that uh, was sparked in the 80s. And maybe that's why things feel a little funny to us. So films like The Final Girls really just take it and pick it apart completely. And it's funny and it's wacky and it's spooky. Um, I think it's, it's really creative. Um, but within their costumes, you can really see that you know, we get we get some of the yellows again. The yellows come back. Always sunshine um, yellow. Yeah. Always have to have sunshine yellow. And so within the film, the camp's colors is, of course, like sunshine yellow and yeah. blue. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I've seen still images. So uh, Lynette Meyer did like an incredible job with those stills that I saw. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. And so you have some of these. Um, I believe some of the characters are. You have the group that was like pulled into the film, and then you have the characters from the film that they were pulled into in the film. <laughs> and so there, you can tell that the characters from the '80s film were very much dressed to play into like this like an overstylized or, version. Yeah, yeah, like this overstylized. Like each character sort of has their thing. Like you can tell, like. Which which counselor is like the alternative one and the sexy one and the stupid one and that kind of thing. Right. But then you have the uh, the people that were pulled into the film who are dressed like it's 2015. <laughs> but it's kind of funny because within I think there's I think there's five of them, mm-hmm. five people that were pulled into the film. They all kind of have their 2015 rendition of these tropes and they're not as highly stylized as it was in the 70s but I think it really really showcases the differences between how people were costumed then and how they dressed then versus how they're costumed now um and as we know like contemporary films are generally a little more subdued you know everyone loves realism these days in the 70s that was not necessarily the case it was always over the top yeah. Um, and so you can kind of see in their costuming, in the uh, the 2015 cast costuming, that it feels 
based in reality, but that's probably because it's not hearkening back to tropes and calling back to things. It is in its period. So it's one easier to costume um, because you're not having to like reference things, but there's a very clear difference between how they are costumed in, you know, a variety of colors and they look pretty casual to the counselors. Yeah. And I think it's really, really smart. And it honestly, I feel like is the film that bridges sort of exactly what we're talking about today, because it's kind of the enmeshing of the worlds of the like revivals and of the classics. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think you would be obsessed with this film. <laughs> oh, I'm sure I will. Yeah, it makes me think of the um, when you're talking about consumerism and everything in the 80s, it's almost as if like whoever the man was right quote unquote mm-hmm. the man of the 80s pushing this consumerism through it's like they wanted people in these boxes and they didn't want them to exit these boxes and like you were this defining trope like either in real life or in a movie and that was all that you were allowed to be and I think through you know obviously studies into not only mental health but just a broader scope of the world and understanding each other and culturally understanding each other we're able to to bridge those gaps now so there's a lot of crossover within a lot of these groups which is why I always ask now like does Gen Z even have clicks and I'm sure that they do because you know kids are kids mm-hmm. and they're going to do those things but I think there's a lot more acceptance and crossing over into like mm-hmm. kind of how you know what what they did with Glee where you know the cheerleaders and the football players were like well we like to sing too you know it's not mm-hmm. just for musical theater nerds anymore and, and so yeah. there's like a lot um, a broader scope of that crossover into these different tropes that are still in existence. I don't think we as people like to put other people in boxes because it helps our bias out. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot, it's a lot more murkier now. Yeah, yeah. I definitely think that like, from what I know about how teens are dressing now is that there's definitely an emphasis on style but it's it's funny it's almost like the online landscape has really shifted things yeah i think that kids are really wanting to find their aesthetic and there is still this massive um there's this massive so there's kind of this this massive emphasis on Mm. personal identity and finding yourself through style and expressing yourself yeah against the norm yeah um but that it's funny, it's not necessarily clicks, but that these subcultures or, or alternative styles have really grown over the course of the internet. Yeah. I know for me, when I was a teen in the, the 2010s, I was very much, I found myself online a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, than I found myself in real life. And it was this great place of escapism for me, you know, as was film. And I saw myself through characters or I felt like I could be myself online because there's no one there to actually judge me in person. It was easier to manufacture right. who I felt that I was online. It's something that I've been actually thinking about randomly a lot lately is how, you know, in real life, if you don't have a certain amount of money, you can't, you you don't necessarily have the means to showcase yourself to the world in the way that you would want to because and 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 you feel that pressure because the society we live in puts a lot of emphasis on having things Mm -hmm. and those things representing you right and if you don't have those things you're not really representing yourself so the way you dress the things you have in your home that kind of thing but online you don't necessarily need to have all the money in the world to show people who you are through what you're wearing so it's easier to create your outfits and I think that 
that's a really wonderful thing. But what I am seeing is that there is a sense of like perfectionism within that and yes. trying to have the perfect aesthetic and be the perfect alternative person. You know right. what I mean? Right, right. Or this like inner research that you're doing within yourself having to lead to some sort of perfection, which is not going to happen. Like we are not perfect or we are perfect, but we're all just searching for divine. That's what I used to say in my yoga classes. We're like, we are imperfect beings just wandering this earth together. So I think, yeah, yeah there it's like a catch 22 with being online where you have more access to things, but then there is that, yeah, like you were saying, that perfection, that veneer that's coming into those. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing as like, you know, when you think about tropes, you think about how a character or a person in real life has their one thing, right? And that there's so much of that emphasis these days, especially with this kind of like rise and grind girl boss culture thing. Yeah, that's happening. They're like, you know, be a self made woman, you know, but only do this one thing, because if you try anything else. It is not going to be correct or people right. are going to be, people will be confused if you do more than one thing or if you're, you know, do things that you're not good at. I completely agree with you. I think that we are more complex than our 80s tropes. And <laughs> I think it's a great thing. And even though there's, it seems to be that there's not necessarily tropes, but that there's more styles accessible to people, but that people feel like they have to have one aesthetic. They have right. to have you know, I'm cottage core or I'm norm core or I'm, you know, this, that, and the other. Right. You can't have your style can't like cross over. You know, for me, it's like, oh, you have to like only this one decade and, you know, you have to dress like it's the seventies all the time. And I'm like, <laughs> some days I dress like a clown. Some days I dress like a punk. Some days right. I wear sweats from Target, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's, I think I, I, I would love, 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 love if, we as a society were able to kind of infiltrate that sort of capitalist mindset that is making money off of us <laughs> and be able to accept each other for all of our differences yeah. and like that it's okay to have different interests it's okay to have different friend groups you know you don't have to hang out with just the popular kids or just the nerds that kind of thing you know with film I think that films benefit greatly from relying on tropes because it informs the character whether it's right uh you know whether your character is just a character with kind of like their one thing you know for time's sake or whether it's kind of hearkening back to an 80s trope it's like oh we know that trope so we know this character mm -hmm. and it, it and through the lens of a summer camp too like we were saying you have kids that are either away from home for the first time or they're they're looking forward to this moment of their year where they can be away from their parents with, with minimal supervision. So it is a time for them to completely find themselves mm -hmm. in an environment that isn't being stifled by their parents in a way. And not that parents, you know, are always stifling. I mean, some parents can be stifling, but like even just being a teen with, with healthy relationship with your parents, you can still feel stifled because you know, you have to get up, you have to go to school and, you know, you, you're living under their roof. So you have a set of rules that you have to follow, but here in this environment, you're just kind of balls to the walls of like, yeah. I can be whoever I want to be and it doesn't matter. And yeah. And, and it allows you to find yourself. So it's interesting that we're framing these stories around. And so when we talk about these contemporary ones, I find that the characters are a lot more complex than their 80s yeah. counterparts. Like I want to dive into You Might Be the Killer because I found this one through on sci-fi and hmm. it is so much fun. Emma, you would really love it. I don't want to give too much away because there is quite 
some twists and turns, but basically it is about a man who uh, is, a, is a camp director and he calls up his friend who's working at um, a comic book like record store and it's Allison Hannigan plays that character and she's on the phone with him the whole movie. So the whole movie takes place with their, it's their phone conversation and his flashbacks to what he remembers of the oh, evening and there's fun. a killer at the summer camp and they don't know who the killer necessarily is um but and you're going through all those tropes and she's in a meta way so it is post so we're post scream obviously so we are horror movies can be aware of themselves now um Mm -hmm. so it's very much her kind of taking him through the tropes of of what a summer camp slasher is and it's a lot of fun and it was costumed um really cool like so when um you see Allison Hannigan's character she is dressed quite um immaturely she's like she's got her overalls on she's got the black choker necklace on and a bandana in her hair and so her look is very youthful and and because she works at this record play store and this comic book shop and so she has this one aesthetic and then you're you're seeing again those yellows, those those greens, those different colors on the camp t-shirts and stuff. And there's a lot of tongue and cheek in this movie, and it's a lot of fun. It sounds really fun. I saw yeah. a picture of her costume, and I really liked that. I could immediately tell that she either she worked at some kind of media shop. She is very clearly like a 2010s alternative girl. Like this just looks like someone that yeah. lives in Portland, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I like that you can tell that, like, I can tell those things, but there's also more to her. Yes. Like, I don't necessarily know her story immediately. Yeah. And potentially, you know, contemporary films like to revel in a little bit of that mystery. Yeah. You know, unlike things like The Final Girls, where they, the characters that were from the 80s, were very specifically mm-hmm. they were they were essentially poking fun at the fact that they were so defined, like, even in their dialogue, they were defined in their trope. They only said the things their trope would say. And the other characters were much more complex. And you would kind of tell sort of who they were, maybe their class through their dress. But Mm -hmm. that you didn't know that much about them. You didn't. And maybe that's because you knew the one. It was was more than the one dimension that tropes give. They had more dimensions to that. And you could tell. You just didn't know all of them. (laughs) Yeah. And then when you go into something like American Horror Story 1984, which was there revival camp slasher 80s season uh i really enjoyed this season some of the other seasons i wasn't a huge fan of this season in particular i thought it was a great standalone season they're hearkening back to the 80s but then you have characters like montana who is branded the mean girl she's into jazzercise aerobics and that's kind of her one dimension but then as the season progresses She's a full-fledged woman who has thoughts and feelings, and and she is a completely developed character in this 80s world. And it was really interesting, um, the journey that they took you on through that season. And I found the costuming to be quite accurate to the true 80s. It wasn't oversaturated with color. It wasn't this, like, characterized version of the mm-hmm. 80s. It was quite realistic. Yeah, I agree. And it, but at the same time, you could tell that it was very much like playing into specific tropes like jazzercise, yeah. you know, oh, yeah, of the yeah. era, which I kind of like. It's like we're taking I wouldn't say they took like a super realism approach to it, but yeah. they did to a degree. Mm-hmm. It felt lived in. It didn't feel like a costume, and that's one of the biggest things I think when it comes to, you know, costuming a revival film. And it, it really depends on the tone of the film and what 
yeah. um, the director once. You know, with this, it was nice because you had kind of everything. You had a slice of everything. It felt like this is fun and campy, but also it doesn't feel, it doesn't necessarily feel like a John Waters film. Although a John Waters and Ryan Murphy crossover would be a very interesting piece. It would be very interesting. I don't think John Waters <laughs> would ever want to do it. Probably not, no. But I do think he's a genius and it would be fun to see him collaborate with anyone. Absolutely. So now let's <laughs> let's talk about your work on Camp Calypso and how oh, it kind of me? Yeah, and how <laughs> it kind of relates to Fear Street because they're both 70s summer camp yeah slashers question mark i mean camp calypso is not really a slasher it's camp calypso is more or less a creature feature yeah um but it's very heavily inspired by 70s slashers Mm. and we let's see we shot that in 2019 it was so fun it literally felt like summer camp there Mm. was one night we even like slept in a tent over at our location oh i love that (laughs) um So yeah, we had a blast. My process was very much, you know, analyzing the tropes of these films. And I remember we, I was out vintage shopping with Hannah, which is one of our our favorite activities. And Hannah co-directed and uh, wrote Camp Calypso. And we were at like one of our favorite spots and we saw this, the cutest thing ever. It was like a perfectly preserved like vintage girl scout uniform oh and my gosh we should have bought it don't know why we didn't buy it but it was so cute we were like oh my god we need to make a film that's like a camp slasher we need to make a camp film we don't know what or when and he was like oh you know i have this perfect location that i've yeah. been wanting to make a film at for years like this this gorgeous like a-frame camp uh that's like by my old house from there it was kind of like that was that was the seed of it and I was just kind of brewing on ideas and looks and how we'd want to stylize the film uh, from that moment. And then it was that we, I think that was like in the middle of um, when we were shooting our previous film. Yeah. A couple months after that, we got the ball rolling and we started having production meetings and it was amazing to see this come to life. And with a short film, something that I talk about a lot is relying on tropes for short films specifically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in films like this that are very clearly like a retro callback to um, the origins of a subgenre, I think that it's expected that you would rely on tropes. Yeah. But I also think that in general, it's something to consider uh, when it comes to costuming or, you know, just making any kind of short film because it's a really good way to tell the audience who this character is uh, through their dress Right. And you have so little time to establish those relationships that you have to kind of define them right away. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, when it came to the types of things I was thinking about, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about ways to, you know, even beyond the tropes, how can I personalize these characters? So one of the counselors, Dean, he's supposed to be um, this kind of like indie artsy guy. He's like totally still a fuck boy, but like he's supposed to be kind of likable. Right. Um, which is the whole point. Like he's it's supposed like to be the lovable hipster that you want, but you know that he's no good for you. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. And then you're like, <laughs> oh, he sucks too. It's that kind of thing. Um <laughs> but he has this like yellow vest and um it's like probably one of my favorite pieces. And I had all these patches that I had been like collecting, just like vintage iron-on patches. We thought that it would be like the perfect opportunity to throw some of those patches on his vest. And what I liked about that was that he 
the patches that I have were a lot of them were rather feminine. It was like, you know, like a little seventies daisy or um, like a cat. There's like a little kitty on Aww. there. Um, and then <laughs> um, there's like a slice of pizza, but then there's also this big one. That's like boys wrestling 1974. <laughs> and so I liked the idea of kind of having this mix of patches, but that kind of portray him as this sort of soft feminine guy. Um, and that that whole point would kind of it, it would further his right. uh, shittiness when you're like, oh, yes, the feminine boys can also be relative as well. Um, but yeah, that was super fun. Um, and then you just have to think about personalized touches. Like I wanted the campers to have like friendship bracelets and yeah. things like that, that really brought it to life a little bit more than just like, OK, they'd be wearing gym shorts or flares and they'd be wearing like a baseball tee. You know, I think accessorizing is sort of one of the big things that gets overlooked in costuming. Also, because it can be kind of annoying for continuity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, like, Trace, Tracy spoke to to that a lot too. How like how important jewelry is, and like earrings and mm-hmm. rings and bracelets and stuff. It just adds that finalized touch of like that yeah. person going out for the day and putting on their favorite like ID bracelet or their favorite pair of earrings or whatever it, it does. It, it adds a sense of realism to that character. Exactly. And so there was a lot of like, just thinking about little touches like that, just to make it feel less costumey. Right. But at the same time, we wanted something to be pretty highly stylized and campy. That's what our aim was with this film. That's something that maybe on other films you wouldn't necessarily get maybe they'd want it more campy maybe they want it more realistic and that's where you get into thinking about what does the audience of today how do they want to see this decade portrayed it's not always how what did they actually wear in this decade i think there's more to it it's like what does the audience how how will they portray the decade best you know because for example this is maybe not related to the 70s but um i did a 90s period piece recently and that was more difficult than doing the 70s period piece because there's been so many 90s trends coming back that Mm -hmm. i had to work a little harder to make sure that the characters didn't look like they were just wearing like an e-girl outfit from today right you know and so those are some of the things you have to think about and i you know kind of am of the mind of like if you do a period piece in any given decade it will look different in every decade like if i did a 60s piece today and then did a 60s piece in you know 2060 it would look completely different just based on the types of things that how people absorb different decades, what tropes right. survived, what trends survived, what had a revival that then sort of redefined itself in a new era. You know, trends themselves, we've talked about this before on the podcast, are still relatively new and even collecting vintage and dressing in, you know, retro styles. That's also just as new and or popular rather. Right. Uh, and the way trends are developing and kind of the fashion cycle is something that we haven't seen go longer than, you know, since the 60s. Who's who's to say what it'll look like 100 years after its birth? Uh, it could, you know, ramp up. We could redefine fashion entirely. Um, and that will redefine how we absorb a, a period piece. Because yeah. the last thing you want is for it to look like either a costume or for it to look like something that was popular, like, 
a year ago, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so it's, it's interesting. It obviously all depends on the tone of what the director wants and, you know, the vision that you have. What we were trying to do was something that was campy, but felt accurate. We didn't want it to feel like they were in, you know, spirit Halloween costumes. Um, I appreciate that because nobody likes a polyester Halloween costume. My God. No, no. And yeah. And so those are the bane of my existence. (laughs) (laughs) We tried to do... Hannah and I collect a lot of vintage respectively and we we like to and you know we want to continue this in our future films um we really like to use actual vintage in our films as much as we can um and with horror films that can be a little difficult you know there was a couple pieces that we had that were vintage or secondhand that I had to work a little harder to you know in Camp Calypso find duplicates for because we had to you know rig them up with blood right (laughs) yeah so um for example Margot's shirt she has like this red red sleeve white v-neck top uh and I had to fine it it was she had owned it and so I was like yes we're gonna use that we know it fits you it's perfect but then I had to work a little harder to (laughs) find one that looked exactly like it right um and then the siren she wears this sort of um negligee vintage uh nightgown that we really liked and originally we were actually going to use one of my own like vintage nightgowns. We didn't want to use it because we were like, okay, we have to do so much special effects work on her specifically that it's not worth using a delicate vintage piece. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that was too scary for us. So what I did was I found it was this mint like nightgown that we were going to use originally. So I found um, some white nightgowns that looked pretty close to the silhouette. And then I dyed them mint green. Oh, nice. So okay. that way we yeah. had um, we had one that we could cut holes in for blood squibs. And then we had the other one and then another one just in case. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and so those are the things you have to think about when you're um, doing horror films specifically, but a period horror film. Honestly, I think that actually using vintage clothing is something that is important to us because it makes it feel a little more real. Yeah. Um, and that was honestly, I really enjoyed Fear Street, but I did have some gripes with the costuming because I thought that it kind of felt a little bit like everything was just from Forever 21. It did have that feel a lot of the time, yeah. Especially in the 90s part, but we're, we're only talking specifically the summer camp part, but yes, I did feel that. Yeah, and, you know, I I don't know if, you know, they had maybe a deal with a place where they were able to get a bunch of duplicates or something like right. that, you know. on You'd think they because they have more money, they'd be, you know, less concerned about you know, doing vintage or then like making a replica or something. But I do think that it's more likely that they would stray away from that because it's right. more and maybe more time consuming and it's less of a passion project. Not to say there wasn't passion put into it, but right. it's just a, you know, there's more money involved. And I think that when it comes to costuming, that can take you out of the period a little bit because so much of the 70s summer camp style is in fashion right now. Yeah. Um, oh, so much. There's a whole brand called Camp. Yes, it is basically just 70s summer camp wear that you can buy baseball tees, terry cloth shorts and everything. And yes, yeah, it's very, very in right now. And it's something that even if it's like, even if, you know, what Ziggy in Fear Street, for example, was Hmm. wearing, even if that's period accurate, I would go with something that was still period accurate, but wasn't something that you could see me wearing on the street right now. Right. Right, um, make it or different. at least the mainstream. Yeah, right. yeah. I it's you know it it worked for me, but also it took me out of it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it did also make me think about um, Fear Street 
1978 specifically, made me think about the importance of hair and makeup and like period hair and makeup. Yes. Here's my thing. (laughs) I feel like you can tell when someone curls their hair with like a curling wand or a curling iron. Yes. And those are things that probably wouldn't be used at summer camp by a camper in 1978. I don't even think we had curling wands then. Um, no. And so I would have loved to see like maybe like braided hair that was like taken out. And so it just kind of like looked like that wavy braid thing. Right. Or yeah. Maybe um, hot rollers or things like things that felt more period accurate like there's ways to do it but i think that sometimes when it comes to films like maybe a netflix film they the the fact that it's a period piece is not necessarily the the core of it and that's totally fine yeah yeah. you know not everyone's gonna be like i'm doing this because i want to do period pieces you know when hannah and i met it was like a coincidence that we were both very into you know retro fashion and film like oh yeah let's make a bunch of films that are like that you know respectively and Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's, it's a set piece, but it's not like the point. Right. And so it can get a little overlooked, which is, it happens. It didn't take me out of it entirely. But if I'm like extremely nitpicky, those would be my only gripes. Well, and makeup is a hard thing too, because I was listening to somebody, um, I think it was the woman who um, invented Besame Cosmetics, which is this amazing vintage brand of cosmetics that are... um, period accurate to colors based on the years that the Mm -hmm. different pigments came out. She was saying that makeup is one of the hardest things to do for a modern actress in the time that it is supposed to be in because Mm. it doesn't look like today. So the actress is already going to feel self-conscious because she's not going to feel pretty because she's not used to looking that way because makeup trends like fashion mm. trends have also changed. Unfortunately, those don't circle like fashion trends do. So what we do is we take period pieces of clothing and we update them with our modern hairstyles and our modern makeup techniques. So that's why like, you know, in the 70s, there was a lot of just like blue eyeshadow and like eyeshadow up to your eyebrows and like not a lot of eyeliner and no contouring. Contouring is was not a thing and so I think when you present that to a modern actress they get very hesitant about wanting to look that way because they don't think that they're going to look their best so Mm, yeah it's kind of a full circle of like how how the world uh markets uh to women and profits off of our insecurities oh yeah 100 percent. but I know yeah I mean it's it's nice to see this new nostalgia coming back. I think when you get another the next generation like up on the up on the dock for mm-hmm. that's you know reaching their thirties or in their thirties, you start to see these nostalgic pieces starting to come back because you're like, oh, I'm really an adult now. Like I was an adult in my twenties, but now I'm really an adult. Mm-hmm. So you miss the youth of it, and you miss. And I think that's where these summer camps get revived and the ideas yeah. of summer camps. And then I also see that like the correlation of when you're in the thick of a lot of political BS too. There's a lot of um, nostalgia for your youth because you didn't have to think about those things then, and you didn't have to worry about those things. So that's when we also start to see a lot of this stuff come back around for sure absolutely and especially things like fear street because i think that a lot of us read those books as kids yeah and seeing to the fear street in general is nostalgic and then those period pieces just kind of are this perfect little package of exactly what people are craving right now right no i think that nostalgia marketing is really a strategy rooted in psychology 
Um, we're seeing it beyond film. You know, I saw Golden Grams had a uh, Golden Grams retro recipe and it was all like 80s graphic design. What? And I was like, wow, I want it. I bought it. <laughs> it worked. I was like, great. I'll try. It tasted like regular Golden Grams, but it was still fantastic. <laughs> but things like that, you know, yeah. so much thing, so much of what we're seeing today is based in what will calm the consumer down. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. what will make them feel, you know, they won't feel bored. They won't feel lonely. They can kind of escape into a world. And, you know, now with decades being so specifically defined by trends, more specifically since the 60s, yeah, we have so much of that to utilize to our advantage um, in media down to like video games and, you know, food and music. Even in like the past 10 years in pop music, there's been tons of 80s influences when it comes to like that synthier sound. And mm -hmm. I think it feels fresh, you know, like what is old can feel fresh after a certain amount of time. And to people that maybe grew up in that era, uh, it can feel really comforting at the same time. Yeah, I am. I'm. I'm eager to see where the nostalgia takes us. I, I know I like being nostalgic. Sometimes it's fun to think about your youth. It's fun to think about a time where you know the biggest thing in your life was like who who were you crushing on and what were you and your girls doing after school, mm -hmm. and, and that's yeah. fun because you don't get to do that stuff anymore. I mean, the flip side is is that the older you get, hopefully, the more secure you get in yourself. So those things matter less. So you do live a peace, more peaceful existence than you did in your teens. I know I am doing that right now, but um, yeah. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to be nostalgic for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, what do you think is the pinnacle of nostalgia really becoming ingrained in the culture as far as film, TV? I feel like it's Stranger Things, but yeah. maybe before that. I think Stranger Things definitely set it off. I think the idea of um, kids kind of taking the reins again and leading these stories forward, um, mm -hmm. showing a new generation of children that they could create their own stories and fight their own demons and monsters. And um, I think, but I think that one particular jump the eighties nostalgia that we have now, where now we're seeing a revival of like cassettes and VHSs to like that mm -hmm. extent consumer wise. Um, I'm curious what in another 20 years is going to, what from our youth, like what sort of emo tropes are going to go? Because apparently oh, yeah. emo is coming back. And I saw that. Kids, that made me feel crazy. <laughs> oh my gosh. And kids now love My Chemical Romance and all these bands. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Right? Like, I know. Great. I'm like, no, it's happening. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. So I can't, I'm, I'm excited to see what that revival is going to look like for our youth. Because mm -hmm. like, are we going to, in our late 30s, start making those films? Probably, because we're probably going to start missing youth because you're reaching that threshold of like mm -hmm. a point of no return. Like you're, you're almost halfway done, question mark. I don't, <laughs> if you believe that 100 years is the lifespan. Yeah. Like yeah. that's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's really, it's really interesting. I mean, in that, you know, that particular example of like, oh, teens are now listening to My Chemical Romance and doing like the scene hair thing again. It's. Yeah, I know it gives me shivers, but <laughs> it it's something that, you know, makes you think about what trends and what tropes are going to survive the years. Like now, the most recent example is like the early 2010s <gasps> or late 2000s. And it's like, what do people like for a while, you know, it felt pretty yeah. much like yesterday. It didn't, we weren't thinking about 
the trends of that era. It right. was, it was just, just we were living in it. Yeah. Yeah. It was fresh. But now we've just started this the very beginning of those trends that survived and that are going to be remembered. Yeah. You know, like the bell bottoms of the 70s. It's oh my God, the yeah. hair of the 2010s. But where are the butterfly clips? Like that's my biggest question. <laughs> I they're they're coming, I feel it. <laughs> But yeah, that's that's something that I like to think about when it comes to like 70s films and the revival of 70s films and these kind of like retro remakes. It's like, what pieces are you going to use? Are you going to just, you know, are you going to do the bell bottoms and the bell sleeve top? Or are you going to like do the bell bottoms, but with a more subdued period accurate, you know, shirt that isn't necessarily talked about? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we'll see. This will be... Her is definitely the hotbed for all of this stuff to kind of converge. You yes. see it you see it the most in horror because I think horror is the most nostalgic genre. Absolutely. I would, I would, agree. I would say. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're there are a lot of revivals and like remakes, but we're also just like this I don't know, there's a comfort in it in mm-hmm. in exploring like what we were just talking about, your nostalgic, your youth. So we shall see. We shall see. Well, <laughs> Jolene, do you have any final thoughts on the summer camp slasher subgenre? I mean, we talked about a lot. And yeah. a lot of the, the clothing is quite basic in this. So, we, you know, we did kind of, we did do some really great breakdowns of it. But yeah, I love that we're getting back to some summer camp slashers now. I think those are, those are so much fun. Yeah. I love nostalgia. And yeah. Literally give me any of it and I will take it. Oh my God. Nick, same. <laughs> same. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to this little summer camp episode of To Die For. And uh, let's see, we have some exciting topics, maybe some exciting guests coming soon. And so definitely stay tuned. And in August, we'll be back with our our regular two per month schedule. And so we hope you uh, stick around for that. Yeah, I know Emma and I are becoming quite the movers and shakers. So you might see some bigger names popping up, which is really exciting. (laughs) We're just getting really important. So, you know. Hey, where's our chainsaw award? Yeah, where's that? Because we're doing some really great, important work. Um, I also want to plug, too, if you're on Clubhouse, um, uh, Rob, another creature designer on Twitter, and myself are creating this really fabulous Clubhouse group for designers to link up with different filmmakers. So if you're interested in that, please check that out. Um, We don't have a date yet, but keep on our Twitter feeds and and we'll – be able to post that real soon amazing Ooh, i gotta check that out too that's yes. so fun yeah you do well thank you guys so much for joining us don't forget to follow us on instagram at to die for podcast that's d-y-e and on twitter at die podcast and next time you go into your closet remember that your pieces could also be to die for